Warning, the following podcast contains naughty words and opinions. While neither of these has been shown to be hazardous, you should be aware that exposure to both has been known to cause chafing. Apply only to available ear-shaped head holes. Cease insertion if resistance is met. Consider this ye warning. There be spoilers ahead. Welcome to Sideslop, the podcast that we do whenever the fuck we want, however the fuck we want, with whoever the fuck we want. This week, as usual, the fuck we want is Chris. I feel fucking wanted. So tell me, Chris, what did we watch this week? We watched The Man from Hong Kong. I, I think, actually, we watched several The Men from Hong Kong. Specifically, was there a man from Hong Kong that we were interested in? Some of us were probably interested in a man from Hong Kong, <laughs> yes. So, Chris, what happened in The Man from Hong Kong? <laughs> <laughs> there were several men who were not from Hong Kong who were uh, uh, drug dealers in Sydney, Australia, which we come to learn is in the state of New South Wales or the district of or whatever the pe- fuck those people call their things. It's a conundrum. There's no way we could do that. No, there isn't. These uh, drug dealers, one gets caught and another one gets blown up. And then uh, the guy who got caught was from Hong Kong, so they need a Hong Kong policeman, so they get a man from Hong Kong. <gasps> Movie title. After that, uh, hijinks ensue and explosions <laughs> ensue. A love interest dies. You know, the standard action movie stuff. What would you call this movie? You call this like a like a James Bond style film or? With more punching and less gunplay. So more of like an Enter the Dragon kind of film? Yeah, I'd say that's a little bit More explosions? Yeah. Enter the Dragon meets James Bond? That's actually a pretty good, yeah. Yeah. Would it be better if you added a James Bond to this movie? You know, you bring that up, but I don't know if you noticed, we we already brought a James Bond to the party. Oh shit, I totally forgot. Don't don't tell me about the name, the man from Hong Kong. I don't know about him. Tell me me about the villain. I want to know who the villain is. Uh, Stargrove. Oh, Stargrove. Stargrove Sr. Fuck me. So it's Stargrove. Stargrove. No, for real. George Lazenby's in this shit. We did not plan that. (laughs) No, no. I think you're, I'm going to turn your podcast into a George Lazenby uh, fan thing. Fan. Fiction? No. You're going to start writing like love stories with George Lazenby seducing you in the grove? Start. <laughs> so you're going to make my podcast a George Lazenby uh, tribute podcast. Yeah, tribute. That's a good word for what I was trying to say. What I learned from this movie is that the one thing that I told you about Strike of the Panther, you know, Blast of the Panther, Karate Chop of the Panther, was that Brian Trenchard Smith, the director, has done several films that I've seen recently, and he almost exclusively makes things look better than they seem like they should by way of like, I don't know, just effective filmmaking on a low budget. And and just that his movies are a hell of a lot of fun. Um, So did I lead you astray with any of that? No, there were plenty of tasteful explosions. The plot made enough sense, even if it wasn't, you know, we'll get into that later. And uh, no, it was well put together for, I'm assuming, a low budget adventure. Low for something starring James Bond. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Um, all right. So tell me, like, just tell me about the movie. Like, what are, what are your impressions? You, you can talk about the plot as much as you want, but, um, I'm not trying to force you to a beat by beat because it basically is just the movie starts. You have the drug scene that you talked about. And then our, our man from Hong Kong works his way through a series of scenes to get to the man at top. You know I mean? It's like, yeah. a, it's a pretty basic sort of thing. You There's know? not a whole lot of, uh, 
gripping drama plot yeah but the plot moves you from point a to point b it's pretty fine. yeah it, it's fine but characters like literally drop into the scene when you need a new love interest tell me about that yeah um so apparently i was i don't know what a kite is i assumed that a kite was that thing that you put on the end of a string and like tied a key to in a, a lightning storm and discover electricity with in america that is traditionally a kite apparently what actually happened was when if you're trying to remember a main character's name i no, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy who did lightning. Oh, Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin. Yeah, I knew there was an F in there. <laughs> ben Franklin apparently did not fly a kite with a key on the end of the string. He uh, took what I understood to be a hang glider through a, a storm, which I really love Ben Franklin. He's one of my favorite you know, Americans. But dude was kind of fat. Can we agree on that? He was portly by nature, but can I just say how much more badass it is if he did take his portly ass into the clouds? I mean, that's how he discovered electricity. That dude didn't just take a hang glider into the clouds. He took a hang glider into the clouds and then got fucking zapped by lightning. What did the key have to do with anything? Because I don't know if you know this, but hang glider frames are made of metal. The key seems sort of like irrelevant at that point. (laughs) Well, I, I would assume that he had to use one of those, you know. 18th century airports that I've just been learning about. And <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Which week we recorded this. <laughs> it's a fun game. I play with the audience. Happy fourth of whatever month this is coming out. You didn't actually explain the, uh, the love interests dropping into the movie. Oh yeah. I, I was getting there. So she's flying a kite, which again has different meanings apparently, but apparently in Hong Kong in the seventies, you could just hang glide into police headquarters. Yeah, like the super secret part. Yeah, like nobody should know that we exist here. But hey, look, lady in a hang glider who's from a different country. Let's just take the hang glider and send her back on her way. At first, they treated her the same way I treat you when you show up on my podcast, which is like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> uh, after they fucked her, they let her go with, a, with just a citation or a warning, you know, so. To be clear, only one person fucked her. It wasn't some sort of like, and it was consensual. That seemed skeezy the way I said it. He merely let her off with a warning after they had sex because why not? Yes, yes. It was more a transactional thing. Yeah. It, he didn't propose it. She did. So it's still not okay. I, I think if I learned anything here, it's just how corrupt the Hong Kong and Sydney police forces are. This particular transaction takes place between what we find out is the man from Hong Kong. Although at this moment, he's the man in Hong Kong. And his love interest, uh, what's her name? Like Cecilia or Carolyn. Carolyn. Yeah. Cecilia. Yeah. Bruce. Bruce. Yeah. Caroline tries to get out of her ticket. They sleep together. And then she's like, cool, I'm going to go back to my, my day job as a reporter where I apparently travel, travel internationally to review hang glider updrafts. And so she disappears. And then the man from Hong Kong has to go and extradite Hong Kong guy who needs translator from the first scene. So we're just like, okay, cool. We've got like a pocket girlfriend for this guy just hidden in Australia somewhere. So that was just a convenient starting point, you know. We also got a second love interest who was the farmer's, I'm sorry, the veterinarian's daughter. Although they did live on a farm. They did. And they had horses. They had plenty of horses. They had more horses than anybody should ever own. The man from Hong Kong goes to extradite the dude. How would you describe the working relationship between the Hong Kong and Australian police departments? The Australian police department is very motivated to get their job done. And by that, I mean not do anything except drink and play pool. Do they know how to play pool correctly? No. Which makes me wonder if they know how to drink properly. Police officer that you assume is an undercover bad guy the entire time because he looks like he does coke. And this is a a drug thing. Mm -hmm. But he's not. He's just, like, lazy. 
And then there's like older, I'm getting too old for this shit police guy too. Yeah. Australian Danny Glover was very white. Very white. I don't know. He just kind of looked like an alcoholic. (laughs) Really? Their contribution to this movie was they didn't have a contribution to this movie. In a normal movie like this, like in Lethal Weapon or, um, you know, Die Hard or, you know, any, The Last Boy Scout, any standard American action film, there's got to be a police chief to like cut to after our hero walks away from the crime scene. And the police chief has to go like, God damn it. Or like, Brannigan or, you know, or whatever. And in this case, it was just like, (sighs) (laughs) they're like, he's murdered nine more people. Just let's go get drunk. Seriously. And how many people do you think he actually killed in Australia, which the last time I checked was not under the jurisdiction of Hong Kong? I'd say at least 15, probably something like 20 to 30. What do you think? Are there people in the house that they drove the car through? There was a guy on the roof. I don't know about inside. I'm going to assume that at least uh, his sex tuplets were in a crib in the living room. So that's six additional. Or is that seven? Well, you've got the people that he ran through with spikes in the 18th story martial arts studio. The crowd of people he murdered in the 24-hour martial arts studio. I was conservatively calling that 10 martial artists. I think it's safe to say that basically there's no point in counting because it was innumerable. Neither of us can count that high after we've had beer. Like 30 is way out. (laughs) Is 30 even a number anymore? Not for either of us. We're old. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) What are are your thoughts about this? Like just overall, uh, how do you feel about what we just watched? I'm kind of mixed on it because it was very well put together for what it was. And the soundtrack was great. It had that mid-70s like all of the punches are way accentuated and that's Mm -hmm. just a product of the times. I can't shit on it for that, but it kind of takes you out of it a little bit. And also this was uh, apparently a golden harvest co-production. And so that's sort of like also the style of that particular studio, which I know you probably aren't as familiar with, but like, that's like a lot of like the Jackie Chan, Bruce Lee stuff came out of there. I'm not going to hold that against it, but it also isn't my cup of tea. The explosions were fun and made no sense, which is exactly what I want from a dumb action movie. There was, of course, racism because it was 75, but it wasn't as bad as it could have been. There was sort of a baseline level of racism towards the man from Hong Kong. The behavior is not excused, but I kind of gave the movie a pass because it did cast an Asian man as the leading man in an English language picture in 1975. And went on to show all of the um, white characters as exceedingly incompetent at everything. Yes, except for his love interests who were very competent at being love interests. Except for the one who died After she screamed once. In her defense, she was in a car that our hero was driving. That's fair. Really, he kind of could have done better. Yeah, I'll I'll go along with that. (laughs) He kind of used her. First, he got massively injured, and then he let her dad patch him up, you know, with his horse scales. And then, you know, he he drove her to her death. And then, but I mean, on the upside, he instantly got revenge at the end of a very cool scene. Yes. Nice little court car chase resulting in... Our hero callously watching a man burn to death. And walking away and then failing to really start his car again, which was kind of funny. (laughs) True, yeah. So really, with everything put together that well and the movie being as enjoyable as it is on its face, it was kind of a different experience for me than the usual cinema slop experience because I kind of want... I wanted it to be worse. You were assuming it would be bad because I was making you watch it. (laughs) Exactly, yes. Going in with the expectation that I'm going to watch something bad and being pleasantly surprised with how good it is, Mm -hmm. but then also being impressed with really the cinematography and the score and the acting wasn't terrible. It comes out as a a pretty enjoyable experience, I think. 
And you did comment about the brutality of the violence, how it, uh, the intensity. That is true. Yes. It didn't hold any punches back. People get stabbed and you see that they are stabbed. It's very not blood colored paint, but it's very red paint. You know, compared to sort of modern action films, like you, you also have a different style of cinematography where um, you, you can actually really see the entire scene unfold. And so when, when things come across as like being really impactful hits and stuff, like it's, it's really impressive because it's not like trick photography. It's just good choreography, good stunt work, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So, I mean, I, I personally was just really impressed overall with the action choreography and shooting and everything. So you have some of the action scenes where the enemies come at the guy one at a time. And that's, I, I think modern sensibilities. I'm looking out for that more than I would have been in 1975. Yeah, yeah. And especially watching it in 1080 rather than whatever I would have been watching it on VHS. <laughs> yeah. So I, I imagine that's more like a sore thumb to me than it would be otherwise. You know, it's 1975. That's what you expect. Although a lot of times you think of movies from like the 70s as being slow paced. I don't think this was slow at all. No, not at all. This had a more modern feel to it. Right on. What were your thoughts? I agree quite a bit with what you said. Um, I think that the direction overall is just kept things moving and it's definitely an action film, but it's like a lightly comedic action film. So even though there is a lot of violence with like pretty intense stunts and, you know, choreography, it never feels too serious. It's, it's, it's a little bit comic booky in sort of the way that you've got these cartoonish villains and oversized police personalities. And like, it doesn't live in the real world of actual crime drama, you know? Right. So from that perspective, I, I thought it was a very successful film sort of just pure escapist entertainment. If you wanted to watch something just in the vein of Enter the Dragon, but you wanted something that wasn't strictly martial arts, but was more just generalized action, you know? Mix in a little bond. It has that feel of like the 1970s of Enter the Dragon, where it's it's a modern film, but definitely still in the 70s style. But it's not strictly martial arts like Enter the Dragon is. You know, it's not a tournament film. It's it's more of a traditional 70s cop drama, but like with martial arts on top. It, it was kind of nice seeing the man from Hong Kong get stabbed a whole bunch and not because I disliked him at all, <laughs> <laughs> but it kind of added a realism to it, even if he's all healed up in the very next scene. It was a montage of horse riding. Okay. Like <laughs> you don't know how long that montage was. It could have been nine months. That's true. Yeah, that's usually how long it takes me to figure out how to ride a horse. But every time the montage ended, he immediately got stabbed again. So, I mean, he was perpetually bloody. Or perpetually in a montage. Or perpetually having sex. It's really not a bad life, except for the stabbing part. But remember, we talked about this. He's immune to stabbing. He spent years stabbing himself in tiny bits, (laughs) building up an immunity. It sounds like you've kind of covered the what worked already. Was there anything for like in this movie that, that you thought stood out as not particularly, you know, working. There were some shots where the director probably tried to do a little too much given the limited budget. Like there was the shot of uh, the man from Hong Kong climbing up the side of a building on a storm drain. Mm -hmm. And as he's climbing up, the crane is following him up with the camera on it. And once it gets towards the end, you can see it start to shake and wobble. And they've kind of like overextended the range of the... Yeah. Yeah. So there are some small bits that are questionable, but... It doesn't take you out of it. It's not a deal breaker. Some of the punching noises, like I said, I get that that's part of the style, but it's not my cup of tea. On top of that, if I could just say, like, it did appear like most or all of the movie was post-synced. You know, the audio was dubbed over. Right. So even though you had people speaking English, there was a little bit of lip flap, you know. It wasn't as noticeable as some of the more egregious, like, 
Sedaris films that we've seen. Yeah, no, it wasn't terrible, but it was there. Um, hang gliding got to be way too cliche because we had three hang gliding scenes. That was probably too, too many. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Once you have a character introduced by hang gliding, you kind of do have to expect, though, that that's setting up something. He obviously ends up using hang gliding as a skill later in the movie. Which, there's nothing wrong with foreshadowing, but hang gliding is kind of one of the more lame skills to, <laughs> you know, here, watch him move at a solid four miles per hour through the sky. Oh, great. Well, and, and you had to have the entire montage of the speedboat getting up to speed as he like the hang glider got elevation. And then you, know, you just got like 10 or 20 shots of the speedboat just tooling around doing nothing. Yeah. You, know? you started to get the feeling that they were like, well, we bought this or we, we rented this fucking boat. We're going to use it. Some of the shot selections didn't feel great. Like the, uh, one I pointed out and remember the most is the airplane landing in Sydney that was bringing the man from Hong Kong. Yeah. You saw the entire landing sequence. You saw that plane descend from 10,000 on the correct trajectory. <laughs> and you heard the pilot on the intercom asking for the wind report. And it was just a little too much. I mean, you even saw the luggage guys like, you know, with the cart just waiting there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That was a weird cutaway. Yeah. It's like <laughs> the one guy was like, Terrence has the kids still got the flu. I, I think his name was Bruce. I get names confused. It's a hard thing, but you know, Australia, it makes it a little easier. Well, when you say it with the accent, it sounds like Terrence. I don't know how to respond to this. <laughs> what did not work for you or what did work? Well, I mean, we, we've covered a lot of what did work, but the only thing I'd add to the things we have, uh, we've said so far is George Lazenby, um, especially his introductory scene, his martial arts skill was actually pretty impressive. Obviously, there were some stuntmen involved, but then the, the climactic fight scene with George Lazenby was actually really intense also. And it seems to me like a lot of times in these these movies, when you have like one big name and they're the villain, you know that that person's going to like stand off to the side petting a cat while the fight happens. I was really impressed with Lazenby's physicality in this, you know, this role. He was much more flexible than I had anticipated. He could high kick with the best of them. So, and he's a big dude. So that was pretty impressive. As far as things that didn't work for me it leaned a little too hard on comedy with the australian cops yeah but i think that was really my biggest complaint they felt a little bit too much like a butt of the joke because the man from hong kong is running around chasing his suspect they're complete idiots and he engages in no less than i don't know eight major fight scenes including like car chases explosions like there's a trail of corpses following this guy <laughs> And he's not even in his jurisdiction. And like, I know that's sort of nitpicky with like the logic, but given that he was not even on the right continent, like <laughs> he was there to pick a dude up. He basically was there for like an administrative task. So th there was a little bit of like a disconnect between just sort of the amount of freedom they gave this guy and also how, how buffoonish the Australians were. That was like the one thing where I was kind of like, really? Okay, like I'll accept it just because everything else is so good. But yeah. also, he literally bags a chick that fell from the sky. That was a little bit laughable. I know it was the swing in 70s, but damn. <laughs> that, that, that's my entire comment. That's all I got. Yeah. But yeah, so Chris, up, down. So this is a weird thing for me because I'm definitely going up, but I would be more apt to say if I had somebody over, Hey, have you seen this really, really terrible movie that I gave a down to rather than let's watch this because it's just 1975 action flick. It's a good one. Mm -hmm. It's a fun one, but you know, it's no like, Oh my God, I'm going to make you watch Malibu express and you're going to shit yourself. I think I'm more likely to make somebody watch 
this than I am to make them watch, you know, um, or, you know, like some other staple action film from the 70s. Not because Smoking the Bandit's a bad movie. It's not. It's a great movie. But this has the added sort of curiosity of being like a Hong Kong Australian co-production. Like, it's just a little bit weird because the culture is just slightly different. And it's rough around the edges, which makes the action scenes a little bit unpredictable. Yeah, I don't want to say that it would be better if it was worse because it wouldn't. This was a legitimately good movie. Yeah, yeah. End of statement. No, no, I, I, I'm not trying to get you to say that. <laughs> I get what you're saying, but I'm just saying I think that this is more unique than many 1970s action films. That's fair. When you had told me this was going to be a low-budget 1970s action movie, regardless of what you told me about the director being able to work in his means, I, I was kind of expecting something that wasn't quite this good. The scale in this surprised me because the last thing I watched this guy do was like a Mad Max like sort of uh, post-apocalyptic kind of thing, but it's called Dead End Drive-In, and it was obvious they were trying to limit the the scale because they had it all take place inside of a drive-in movie theater that the drive-in operators trapped the people in and made them residents. When the scale of this was all of Hong Kong and Australian Sydney, is it? Yeah. Like, it felt like all of Australia because they went to like rural Australia, they went to like, you know, urban. So yeah, I was surprised by the scale too. So up, down? Oh, for me, it's definitely an up. I love any action movie that makes me like believe that there are moments of realism in the action, even though I know all action is stylized and choreographed. Anytime a movie makes me think that hurt, I'm like, okay, that movie's got me like in the moment. So, and, and that happened a number of times in this film. There was a lot of testicle play. The man from Hong Kong was not afraid to go for the soft parts. No, no. He did that like three times in four fights. <laughs> but it, it wasn't even just that. I mean, there was there was moments with knives in the dojo fight. There was the moment that guy got run over by the car. Yeah. There was like when the car went through the house. There was when uh, George Lazenby's character, not George Lazenby, was on fire. <laughs> or blowed up by the mouth. Yeah, or yeah, exploded by a grenade. But like there was enough impact, you know, to all the stuff that I was like, I was like getting sucked in. So yeah. that's that's definitely enough. Perfect. Well, take us home. Stargrove? Stargrove! It did star. Stargrove! That was terrible. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it. Done. All right. No second chances here. That's it for this episode of Cinema Slop. You can visit us on the web at cinemaslop.com for show notes and other garbage. Or if you want to follow us on social media or pitch your Walter Chang's inventory choices to us, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, all under Cinema Slop. The music for this episode was provided by Vandalay. You can find them on the Facebooks at Vandalay Music or vandalaymusic.com. That's V A N D A L A Y music.com. If you want to listen to buttholes like me talk about stuff, you should listen to Super Movie Bowl. It's very close to Cinema Slop, so you should totally listen to it. And where would they go? At SuperMovieBall.com, Twitter, and SuperMovieBall at Gmail. (laughs) All right, buddy. Come here. Ah. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. Nothing's going to stop us now. For those of you at home, Chris is relocating the feline creature. You made me lock my cat away for this podcast. My cat is going to hate me and love you because you're like, let me pet him and then throw him in the room.